Thank you for that, Nisi. Bless you for that blessing for us this morning. A mother of five notoriously unruly children was asked years later, would you do it again? And she said, yeah, I'd do it again, just not with the same ones. When asked about lessons that his mother had taught him, one son just couldn't say enough about all the lessons, life lessons that she had taught him throughout his life. Many, many different topics and subjects. Perhaps you've heard some of these before. Things I've learned from my mother. My mother taught me about religion. You better pray that stain will come out of the carpet. My mother taught me about time travel. If you don't straighten up, boy, I'm going to knock you in the middle of next week. My mother taught me about logic because I said that's why. My mother taught me about foresight. Make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. They don't say that anywhere. I think anymore that's pretty outdated, I think, anyway. My mother taught me about irony. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. My mother taught me about stamina. You'll sit there until that spinach is gone. My mother taught me about weather. This room looks like a tornado came through it. My mother taught me about hypocrisy. I told you once, I'll tell you a million times, don't exaggerate. My mother taught me about the circle of life. I brought you into this world and I can take you back out. My mother taught me about anticipation. Just wait. Until we get home. And then my mother taught me about receiving. You are going to get it when you get home. And my mother taught me about sharing. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. And my mother taught me about fear. One day you'll have a child that behaves to you just like you're behaving to me. And on that note. I'd like to wish all the moms here this morning a happy Mother's Day. We love you. We honor you. We hope that you are lifted up. And it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will give you the blessing that you need this morning in your estate of motherhood. And after the service, it's our tradition to treat the mothers just as a little token of our appreciation, as a way to say we honor you and love you. On your way out, there'll be a table set up and uh, Shelby and Hunter Roberts have been put in charge of handing out flowers, so you'll receive a flower as you leave, and then also some special treats out there to make sure that you are uh, stay sweet as a mother. But we appreciate you, and we certainly thank God for you. You know, motherhood is an awesome thing. It's just something that it transforms a person, not just spiritually or in their character, but also physically. There's a Literally a physical transformation that takes place uh, with motherhood. And it's just an amazing thing to watch and to fathom all that goes in from conception to birth in motherhood. And there are a few words that are more exciting than I'm expecting. Very, very exciting words. And I like that this church gets excited about babies. Um, And when someone comes and... And announces that they're expecting a child. A lot of times we clap. We get all excited. Or if a, a 
someone announces we're having another grandchild or another grand, great grandchild, have all you want because we continue to get excited. And we need to uh, be intentional, by the way, of nurturing a pro-life culture in our society that has been uh, deemed the culture of death. And pro-life isn't just about uh, babies, but it's about motherhood. It begins with motherhood. And so we want to be intentional about creating a culture here that honors mothers like God does, like the Bible does. Uh, it's, it's okay to dote over moms, especially expecting moms, and to be excited with them. It's okay to give moms with several children a break every once in a while, to, to give them a hand of assistance. But we just want to be mindful and intentional about honoring this gift of motherhood. And we all play a part in that. It's really our God-given job to look at motherhood and to honor motherhood as God does. We're the church. We're God's people. And if we don't do it, as you can see in our culture, it will not be held in high esteem. And so when you hear the words, I'm expecting, especially for the first time, it is very exciting for the first time because first time moms don't completely know exactly what they're getting into. Uh, experienced moms might tell you this is what you can expect to eat twice as much and sleep half as much to hide in the bathroom just to be alone to count the number of sprinkles on each kid's cupcake to make sure they're equal to have time to shave only one leg at a time. Or to find yourself cutting your husband's sandwiches into unusual shapes. And then to stop criticizing the way your mother raised you. Funny how that works. How about fashion and clothes? How will that change? Well, for instance, the first baby, you begin wearing maternity clothes as soon as you find out it's legitimate and you are expecting. You're very proud. You're very excited. And you want everybody to know there's a baby on board. Second baby, you wear your regular clothes as long as possible. And the third baby, your maternity clothes are your regular clothes. I, just, I didn't. Just, just. But every uh, though every motherhood is is unique, um, we all face different things and have different child um, circumstances. I think that the overall desire of every mom is to be a good mom it really is. I don't know that I've ever talked to an individual, uh, even if they have been a tremendous failure. I've never talked to an individual mother that has said, you know, my goal in life is just to be a terrible mom. It's always to do the right thing. That's that's the underlying motive of hearts. And they want to know that the babies that they brought into this world will be well cared for and given a, a leg up um, and, and become something special. But to at least know that mom cared. It's interesting that in our society that isn't particularly a culture of life that we still have a sense, as Romans tells us, of right and wrong. And one of the things is, though, a lot of times motherhood is not held in high esteem, 
Yet if you hear a story or you read a headline of a mother that left a child in the car with the windows up in the summer or any kind of like that, anything like that, you think, oh, my goodness, that's just terrible. It's tragic because there's this this understanding in us that there's a there's a covenant, um, an unwritten covenant between mothers and their children that they're going to be there to protect. And if anybody else is going to be there, it's going to be mom to protect you. And so when we read about stories where this isn't the case, it just it just undoes us. And I believe that's God's imprint on our minds of how things should work. One very well known individual said this. My mother said to me, my son, if you grow up to be a to be a soldier, you will become a general. Or if you grow up to become a priest, you won't just be a priest, you will become the pope. And he says, instead, I became a painter and wound up as Pablo Picasso. Mary Moeller, wife of Al Moeller, says, let's remember that motherhood is God's idea. Only 80 verses into the Bible, and we read that Eve, Eve said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now think about what it must have been like for Eve. She could not consult with the ever popular volume of what to expect when you're expecting. She had no mother. She had no mother-in-law to consult and ponder that. No one could tell her horror stories about labor. She only had Adam to confirm that she was getting quite pudgy around the middle. And finally, she gave birth to the very first baby. Motherhood is God's idea. It's God's design. It is a part of the fabric of the world that we live in because he created it and it cannot be improved upon. By God's design, every life comes into this world literally dependent on the love and the care and the nurturing of a mother. So much so that it is that love and care that actually ensures that that life is being formed and developed as it should be. It's this connection that God made in heaven and it's displayed on earth. You know, moms, your your womb is your baby's first home. Your arms are your your baby's first cradle. You're your baby's first meal. And that baby is, is not just as Corky referred to in Psalm 139, knitted and formed by the hand of God, but knitted and formed by the hand of God to your movements, to the harmony of your life, to the hum of your voice. To the beat of your heart. All of what you experience. Your baby is being formed. In you. As a part. Of you. Nurtured. You know mom. Is probably. The most used household name. Ever. And I think if if we could. If somebody donated a nickel. To every time you heard the word mom. We could pay off our national debt. I know in my house with nine kids, that's all, almost all you ever heard. Mom, mom. One day I was like, mom, 
because you need mom to do everything for you. When you're a kid, your goal is to get mom to do everything possible. It doesn't matter if you know how to do it. Mom, can you tie my shoe? But you're 20. Mom, mom, no answer. Mom, mom, why aren't you answering? I've changed my name. I'm no longer answering to that name, mom. It's used too much. Children are almost completely dependent upon their mothers from ages zero to three and then pretty dependent from, say, three to 13, 14, 15, and then not so much around 18. But the kids don't realize that. They think they need you the rest of their lives to do everything that you will do for them and that you have been doing. But if we're honest about motherhood, if you just stop and think about motherhood, it is an absolutely amazing thing. It really is from start to finish. It is amazing. Moms are amazing. And every time I have to um, speak on Mother's or Mother's Day, it's just a daunting task. It really is. Because I think for two reasons. One is that moms are so amazing. And then when you really think about it, I think my mind is just flooded with all the memories and, and the impact that my mom, who's 92 now and can't hear, but the impact that she had on my life, I'm just flooded with memories and, and sacrifices that she made. And it's just humbling to even try to talk about this. But another reason it's daunting is because motherhood truly is sacred. It is from God's design. And sacred things happen in this estate of motherhood. And it just leaves me in a sense of, sense of awe and, and humility. And the thing I want to focus on this morning, it's, it's just one big point. And I'll just talk about it from all different angles. But I want to focus on uh, the sacrificial love aspect of motherhood. And there's so many things that could be talked about. I just want to zero in on that. The sacrificial love aspect of motherhood. It's difficult, I would say, even impossible to think about or even tr try to define motherhood without the word sacrifice. Can't be done. Sacrifice is a part of it. I, I don't know that you can even be a mom and escape sacrifice. And we often draw attention to the profound nature of a mother's love for their children and but what makes that love stand, say, a head higher than other loves? But it's the fact that that love behind that love is this willingness to make sacrifices for their children. That's what I think sets it apart and many times leaves people in a sense of awe over the office of motherhood. Love without sacrifice has no guts. Love with sacrifice just elevates it and manifests it and, and shines glory upon it. Jesus often measures love not just by the gushy feelings, but by the level of sacrifice displayed when he says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. If you think about motherhood, what is it but a laying down of your life? It's your giving of your life so that others can have life. 
How redemptive is that? What a biblical picture of God's plan of redemption. Christ laying down his life so that we can have life. And moms are constantly giving of what strength, what energy, whatever they have. Constantly giving. So that others can thrive. So it's a willingness to make those sacrifices, I think, that leave an impact on us and really kind of sets motherhood apart from just other generic kinds of love and relationships. Prisoners this very hour are lined up by the thousands to call their moms. Hardened criminals doing time, disregard for the law, no respect. No honor in certain areas are lined up waiting just to speak to their moms, to wish them a happy Mother's Day. It's fact. Because of whatever happened in their life or wherever, whatever turned them to the left or the right, when they think and contemplate about mom, mom had enough of an impact in their life to realize I honor her, I respect her, I have to call mom today. If I don't do anything in this world that's good, I'm going to do this. Motherhood. Selfless acts. And we think about all of the selfless acts. And I, I think it kind of leaves us in this place. Again, how redemptive is that? But feeling I could never repay all that. You think about all the things your mother has done for you. I can never begin to repay all of the sacrificial love that my mom has Expressed. And I think that motherhood often, and we hear different examples of it, you know, throughout our years, but uh, motherhood is literally designed to leave us in a state of awe, designed to leave us humble, intended to be set apart to amaze us. Now, why? Because sacrificial love that's found in motherhood is intended to communicate the sacrificial love that is found in Godhood. It is literally an earthly display by God's design to communicate. God loves to reveal himself. I mean, we have this book. We have creation. We talked about this morning in Sunday school. It's the heavens are declaring the glory of God. It's revelation, natural and special. But God wants us to know. He wants the world to know who he is and what he's about and how he thinks and how he operates. He wants to display his attributes. And how can God reveal this part of him, the sacrificial love part? How can they possibly understand how far God will go or how much he will just give day after day after day after day and give and give and give? How can the world ever know this without an example to point to on earth? And God points to motherhood as an example of sacrificial love. Moms are constantly laying down their lives. They carry this burden in the womb for nine months. And then they carry that child for the next three, five years on their hip. And then they carry that child and the burden of that child in their hearts forever. 
Elizabeth Stone said, making a decision to have a child is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. So it's designed to function. It's designed to to thrive in certain areas when this daily sacrifice is met. And what I want to do is give you an example of the sacrificial love, a biblical example of the sacrificial love aspect of motherhood. And I'm going to use very obscure passage, and you probably read it and didn't know it. A couple years ago, I came across this reading, reading the Old Testament, and I, and, and I went back and read it again. Because, you know, Old Testament, you get, you get hung up in names and places, and, and you, sometimes you get lost. But I went back, I read it, and I was like, what? And it just, it just shook me. And I'm, I'm revisiting this. But I want to set the stage. So what we're going to see is we're going to see a biblical example of the sacrificial aspect of love as displayed in motherhood. But to do it right, I have to kind of set the stage. And I don't want to spend all our time looking at the scriptures, how all this. So I just want to, to tell you. This takes place in a very gritty, dark time in the kingdom of Israel. It's kind of gloomy outside right now, but think about that spiritually. David had been anointed king and had actually become king. Saul's out of the picture. And when David first became king, I mean, the kingdom just took off. God blessed him. And every time he took his sword in his hand to fight Philistines, he won. He was defeating Philistines. He was driving people out of the land. The vision of God was being fulfilled. David was on fire, you might say. The kingdom of God was growing in all of this Palestinian area. Things were going absolutely wonderful. God's glory was displayed. And then evil found its way into the kingdom. That was there in smaller forms all along, but it came in through the king himself, David. And David let evil come into his mind, and that's when David committed adultery. He lusted and he committed adultery. He gave in to it. He had resisted all this time, but not this time. And then he gave in even to murder and treachery. And when he did that, the light began to darken and the clouds began to come over the entire kingdom. And things just went where there was just the deepest loyalty and respect. Now it's just being ripped and torn apart. And you have son against father, mutinies and disloyalties, things that should never happen. And even between great general against great general that used to fight side by side. And now they're slaying one another. Great heroes worthy of honor. It's just a you're watching things fall apart. You're watching things go downhill. And it's dark and it's gritty and it's treacherous. That's the context of this. And then on top of all that, there's this three year famine. I mean, people are starting to starve to death. You can't get anything to grow. There's not rain. So David comes before the Lord and he just says, God, what is this? What are we doing? What do we have to do? What are you trying to tell us? 
And God says there's blood guilt in the land. And that's why it's cursed, if you will. Blood guilt in your land, in your kingdom. What blood guilt from what? From Saul. Saul broke covenant. He broke covenant with the Gibeonites. And back in history, when the Israelites were coming into the promised land and they were driving out the Amorites and the Moabites and the Mosquito Bites and all the bites that they had to drive out. And the Gibeonites were tricked the Israelites into making a covenant with them. And they say, we will not harm you. We will not drive you out. It was a covenant. It was a promise. It wasn't smart, but they made it. And what did Saul do when he became king? He slayed Gibeonites. And God says there's blood guilt. Covenant has been broken. Something must be done about it. And so David goes to the descendants of these Gibeonites where the covenant was uh, made. And then, of course, recent, more recently broken. He goes and he says, look, the Lord has revealed this to me and there's blood guilt. What can I do to make it right? We have to make this right before God. And they say, in essence, David, you know, I, I don't want your silver. I don't want your gold. That won't make it right. And I don't want to take up sword and, and go to battle. I don't want lives to be lost. Life after life after life in the form of war. But to remove the blood guilt to make things right, what I want. The seven sons of Saul. I want the blood of seven sons of Saul to atone for the blood that has been spilled in Gibeah. So David gathers seven living heirs of King Saul, who is deceased. He gathers them together and he hands them over to the men of Gibeah. And the men of Gibeah take them to their land of Gibeah and they hang them to their death. Five of these sons came from Saul's daughter, Merib. Five boys. Two of them came from Saul's concubine, Rizpah. Seven. In a sense, they were, it's an Old Testament thing, but in a sense, they were sacrificed. They, their blood was, the, was to atone for the whole nation. The guilt of the whole nation. Their blood can make things right. It was a sacrificial blood. So they would bear the curse. Do the covenant breakers. And so there at Gibeah. They hung in public disgrace. And they hung as cursed in public shame. They were frowned upon and scorned upon. And then if you were there. However many were there, there's a commotion. And rather than people standing their distance against these cursed bodies, one commotion and one figure starts making its way towards them. Who shows up and draws near but the mother Rizpah? To her two boys. 
Second Samuel 21, 9 through 14. David gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth. And spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day. Or the beasts of the field by night. See, they may have been bearers of a curse. This is real. But they're her boys. They're her sons. They did nothing to shame. They're not hanging there because they brought dishonor to her or shame to their mother. She loved them. They were her comfort. They were her support. She did not cut them off. They were cut off from Israel as an atoning sacrifice. It wasn't because of their sins or their life of dishonor. It was because of their vile father. Or grandfather. They were cut off. And she decided they deserve honor. She decided they deserve protection. They deserve decency. So who's going to do it? Mom. She shows up on the death scene. And she lays her cloth on the ground. And she's going to see it in the heat of the day that the birds do not dishonor these bodies. And at the risk of her own life in the darkness of night, see that the beasts of prey do not dishonor these bodies, not her boys. And so she parks herself there and she fends any enemy off. And though they must die, they will not die in obscurity. They will not be dishonored. And so at her own risk, mom stands her ground. Verse 11, David was told. Word spread apparently throughout the land about this mother. David gets word. What Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead. They had been killed previously in battle and brought there. And he brought them, their bones, Saul and Jonathan, and the bones of those who were hanged. The bodies of those who were hanged. And they buried them. In the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the, the tomb of Kish, his father. And all that the king commanded was done. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land. And grace and mercy flooded the land. And rains came. And things grew. And goodness re-entered. You see, Rizpah's gritty Gritty, sacrificial love in this gritty, dark time spoke so loudly that it moved the heart of a king to give her sons the burial of a king. 
It was her aim for them not to be dishonored, but to be honored and protected. And because of her love, that is exactly what took place in the plan of God's redemption. Understand this. In the plan of God's redemption, the sacrificial love of a mom righted a wrong. It was after the bones were brought back and respected and honored that the curse was lifted. And the goodness of God flowed. A mother's sacrificial love can reverse a wrong and make things in the kingdom of God right. How profound is that? That a mother's sacrificial love can reverse a wrong and make things in the kingdom of God right. And there are wrongs that need to be reversed in our world today. And there are moms that can do it. Now, how can God possibly communicate The love that he has, the love that he wants to display to the people of this world. He says in Isaiah 46, three through four, listen to me, O house of Judah and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth. He's using motherhood terminology to communicate. You've been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you and I will deliver you. Listen to the intensity of these self-availing words. God's drawing on the design and the display and the common knowledge, what the world would know about motherhood to make himself known to the world. This this beautiful desire that God has to bring life, to give life. The beautiful desire God has to cradle and to nurture and to feed and, and to give of himself so that others can thrive. He turns to mom that the world might know. Moms give up a lot to make that happen, don't they? You think about the beautiful progress or process of motherhood. They, they give up some on some occasions their, their youthful figure. A bones shift. It's an amazing medical phenomenon. Look it up. Bones shift to make way for this newborn baby, this new life that God is going to bring in. Skin stretches. Sometimes never goes back. Things swell. Noses grow, hair thins, backs ache, feet ache. Weird cravings are flung upon them to eat larger portions than usual. And this is all before the babies even hit the ground. Things are happening. And it's through labor pains, pains at children. Beautiful lives are brought into this world. And that's, of course, epidural, you know, labor pains. You know, you think about motherhood. How many mothers in here have thought to themselves? I just don't have any more to give. It's one of those days. 
And all the children are, happen to need their diapers changed at one time or whatever, whatever age they are. All, every, there's just all these needs and all these demands. And you think, I have nothing, God, to give my offspring. And you're looking at a chair and you just want to sit down for a couple seconds. But you take a deep breath. And you give again. And you give again. And you give again. Day in and day out. And that's the sacrificial love aspect of motherhood that actually causes this world to thrive by design. Eve had that child with the help of the Lord and God is in it with you. And God wants you to thrive in your motherhood. And God will give you the inspiration and the grit, the very spirit of God in you to bring forth these displays that will draw inevitably attention to his own glory. What an instrument. What an awesome thing that we behold. It's hard work. But know this as I wind it down. When it comes to Christian motherhood, kids, the things that your mom wants the most from you is to just love Jesus. They will take a messy room over a messy heart. I'll just tell you that little secret. As much as they don't like a messy room, if your heart's right with God, it can wait. But a messy heart will mess them all up. A heart that's not right with God, a heart that doesn't like God. A Christian mom just wants you to thrive. And here's what they know. There's only one set of hands that exist that can do a better job at nurturing you and caring for you than her own hands. And that is only the hands of God. And so as much as they love you and all the sacrifices, and they will gladly give you over to the hands of God. And that's the cry of their heart. The cry of a Christian mom. Wiping noses. Putting band-aids on cuts where there's no blood. Probably not even a red mark. Enforcing curfews and restrictions and packing lunches and all the mundane things of motherhood. Take on a new meaning when we realize this role. That it reveals the character of God. And so God says, even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you and I will bear you and deliver you. Moms, you have the love of God upon you. And he wants to love you and give to you faithfully at any cost, day in and day out. Father God, I pray as your Holy Spirit is in this place with your people, you love motherhood and hold it in high esteem, higher than we can imagine. And these are your moms and moms to be. Holy Spirit, will you give them the strength and the stamina to reveal your glorious name in the way that they care for those that you have put under their charge. Bless them, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.